0: Hi, this is Steve Richards from the Rock and Roll Politics podcast and I host a live show Rock and Roll Politics. I'm thrilled to say it's coming to Brighton at the Old Market Theatre on Monday, April the 24th. We delve deep in these shows and have some fun at the same time and I think we're going to do a deep dive into the leadership of Keir Starmer. What's it all about? What do you think it's all about? Does he know? Other themes, depending what's happening on the day. Your unreliable predictions, questions. Come and join us. Rock and Roll Politics, live in Brighton on April the 24th at the Old Market Theatre. Look forward
1: to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Alex Andre. Why are you still in your dressing gown at 11am? Don't worry, I'm not omnipotent, just playing the statistics. On Tuesday's edition, fall of the House of Starmer. Labour's poll lead is narrowing. Can Keir Starmer find the right message and the right tone? Also, GB News is morphing into Fox, the Tory party morphing into the Tea Party, Liz Truss is on a US tour, and the worst news is that they might let her come back. How did our politics get so Americanized? Plus, the new non-pology. I've referred myself... How did investigations become a way to actually hide the truth? Let's meet the panel. Tom Peck is an independent sketch writer. Hello, Tom. Hiya, how you doing? I'm um, well, Tom. Um, Russian-British activist Vladimir Karamoza um, has been sentenced to 25 years in jail in Russia for charges linked to his criticism of the war in Ukraine. I believe you actually know him, right? Uh, yeah, I was quite
2: good friends with him at, u- at university. He lived um, in the cor- corridor next to me and we, we, we were quite good pals. So I haven't seen that much of him since, but I have interviewed him twice. Um, uh, most recently after, his, after the second time he someone tried to assassinate him via chemical poisoning. And obviously I've been following what's happened to him very closely. So this
1: must be quite a, a, a strange moment for you.
2: I mean, it's it's yeah, it's extremely surreal because he. I mean, he's a very 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 nice guy. He went to school in the UK and he has a British passport, and he's entirely entirely bilingual, and he was a real you know character around around where I went to university, and he was very well known and and everyone loved him, and now you see him his face on the news and his name on the news, which is a name you know that I usually you know I used to see him putting up pictures of his kids on Facebook, and now I see him on the news being sentenced to trumped up charges by Putin and being sent to
1: prison for 25 years yeah Tom do you think this this kind of uh, court case has the potential to backfire by highlighting Putin's cri- critics by by basically making known the fact that not everyone is on board with this war
2: um i mean i don't i don't think Putin is not interested in the in the Russian public's opinion of him, I don't think. I think he knows that most Russians are no longer fooled by his complete bullshit. There's enough people having been conscripted, enough people coming home injured and killed, or not coming home killed, for his um smokescreen to very clearly be seen through. Not by everyone, but by enough people. So I don't think there's any so I don't think the point of this is that it could backfire by, by revealing that his war is a load of bullshit. I think I think he's making a very very vicious example of someone who dared to criticise him, and and for historic reasons too, because he was a key uh, advocate of the Magnitsky Act, which uh, all around in lots of different countries around the, around the world, which Putin really did um, take very strongly against. Um, I mean, it's not sustainable, right? You can't hide reality forever, and that's sort of what um, Vlad. We, we 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 all call him Vlad, even though Vlad is short for Vladislav. But anyway. Um, you 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 sort of you can't hide reality forever I mean it, it has to fall apart, but the time scale and the process through which it all fall apart falls apart and who has to suffer in the interim well, no one really knows that do they I mean I, I don't profess to have an answer but I, I mean it's clear that you can't that Vladimir Putin can't pretend that the world is flat forevermore, but the process by which the truth reestablishes itself is likely to be a very messy one and i I don't know what that, what implications that has for for Vlad, who's been jailed for 25 years. I mean, I heard, I heard someone on the on the news this morning say that because he has a British passport,
1: it may be possible to do some sort of prisoner exchange or yeah. something, but who knows? Well, we wish him and his family well. Seth Tevos is a journalist and author of Behind Closed Doors, the secret life of London's private members clubs. Hi, Seth. Hello, hello. Seth, last week, Elon Musk agreed to a last-minute interview with the BBC's North America technology reporter, James Clayton, Clayton was heavily criticised afterwards for being apparently poorly prepared, soft soaping Musk and running out of questions. What what did you think?
0: Yes. I mean, I'm a little reluctant to join the stampede uh, because it's usually the people who hate the BBC, Um, particularly the Murdoch press have been out in force sort of um, criticising this interview. But to be fair, it was pretty poor. Um, Yes, they did have to uh, do something very short notice and uh, put together a one hour interview. But Most of the best interviewers I know um, usually mine their questions from uh, their tech team, for example. A lot of the technicians, a lot of the camera crew will come up with the very best answers and uh, questions rather to ask. Um, And a lot of the best interviewers run with the material that they have. And if you have somebody who is truly fascinating for all the wrong reasons in front of you, then I can't think that 101 follow-up questions wouldn't come to mind. Joining us is
1: the is the proper person on the panel, Senior Associate Editor of the New Statesman, Rachel Cundliffe. Hello. Fresh from sampling the far superior bathing waters of the Aegean Sea, I understand, my home.
3: It was so clear. Where did clear. you go? We were in Crete. Oh. It was wonderful. And yes, I took a picture of the sea where you could see all the way to the bottom and I tweeted it and tagged raise Coffee on it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? You you lose all sense of depth perception because you think my toes should be able to touch this and I, then you realise you're about 10 feet up.
3: It's absolutely incredible. It was it was cold because of that at the beginning of the season, mm. uh, but you also lose all sense of time mm. uh, and any tethering to the shit show that is UK politics, or at least that was my experience.
1: Lovely. To I'm domestic, back now. To domestic <laughs> matters now. Um, the Prime Minister made a speech Speech on his passion for maths, so stimulating that most news channels cut away from it after the first two sentences. But those who hung around witnessed this magical Q and A moment after the first, probably planted, question.
2: Anyone else? All good. No, no others from you. Any, right, anyone else have some questions before we get over to the media? OK, gosh, this is very quiet. Anyway, actually, I'll broaden up. Do you have any questions on things that are not related to maths? <laughs> um, I'm all, also fine for those. All fine? Right, OK, well, let's uh, we'll turn to the media. for
1: some questions. Uh, Rachel, is a cultural... Aversion, really the obstacle here, rather than the horrible teacher shortage that means in 45% of state funded school, m- maths is taught at least in part by non-specialist teachers.
3: I mean, that's a mathematical equation that you could give Rishi Sunak, <laughs> isn't it? If, if nearly half of state schools don't have the math teachers they, they need, uh, how poor will the math teaching be and what impact will it have on the future of the economy? You could ask him that. You could
1: ask 45%, him, I would <laughs> say.
3: <laughs> you could ask uh if if math teachers or teachers in general have suffered a, a real terms pay cut over the last thirteen years, what impact will that have on recruitment and teaching standards? You could also ask him, what impact will it have that uh pupils at UK schools lost one, two years, depending on how you measure it, of in-person schooling during Mm. COVID and didn't get the resources they needed to learn at home and haven't been offered a properly funded catch-up programme. In fact, the recommendations for what that catch-up programme should look like and how much a bunny should be offered to go towards it were... Uh, rejected by Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor uh, so you could ask him all these questions yes, and, and, and I think the person who had recommended him resigned actually yeah he quit yeah. he quit he was offered 10% of the his name was Kevin Collins, I think, mm. uh, and he was offered uh, 10% of the funding that he had said was necessary uh, and quit in, in disgust. Now, you could blame some of that on Gavin Williamson and goodness knows I do. Uh, <laughs> but needless to say, Rishi like had the opportunity to put his money where his mouth is and didn't take it. But I, I kind of, I, I like that he's still going for the everything would be okay if everyone just loved maths as much as as much as I do. Yeah, uh, maybe, I maybe
1: you should start with truss and quoting.
3: Well, he, would be my
1: recommendation. He, he, to address he did the issues in in his own benches.
3: In that, in that they're no longer uh, in his cabinet. I guess <laughs> he he has done that. But the the longing on his face. Please, won't somebody ask me a question about maths? Please, sir. Please, sir. Let me talk about maths. It's it's almost sweet until you remember that he's prime minister. <laughs>
1: First this week, the gap is narrowing. A poll by Savanta suggests that the days of 20-plus point leads for Labour are now over. Chris Hopkins thinks the narrowing polls are down to the fact, and I quote, there isn't a great deal between the two parties at the minute in terms of what they are presenting. Sam Friedman, on the other hand, is pointing out that if one digs into the figures, you find that the number of people, including 2019 Tory voters saying they will vote for Labour is much the same as in the heights of a few months ago. What has changed is that 2019 Tory voters who had switched to don't know are coming back, something that both Opinion and Cantor had predicted and adjusted for, which is why they have always shown Labour leads in the teens. Tom, the aggregate lead uh, on the politico- poll of polls, remains at 16 points as of today, which is still six points higher than the aggregate for the last few months of Johnson. So is there a reason to panic, or is this simply an equalisation, basically, after the truss blip?
2: Well, I definitely wouldn't panic. I mean, I'm i am I, I'm a political sketchwriter. I just do the lols. I mean, I'm not a big one. I'm lols, not polls. Always have been, always will be. <laughs>
3: You should make that your um, Twitter bio.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of pundits are very into polls and it always, always seems to be a bit too complicated for me, other than knowing that polls go up and polls go down and millions and millions of people will decide who they're going to vote for a few weeks or a few days before the election and not before, and for reasons that we probably don't even know yet, right? The election is 18 months away. Mm. 18 months ago, there was no party gate, no trust, no vaccine, no anything. I mean, I don't, so I don't think panic is the word because I don't think anyone in Labour has probably at any point really thought that it's actually in the bag, done, finished, we've just got to wait now. But they still, as they know, have to set out a compelling vision for why people should vote for them. The five missions are the, the plan to do that, and we haven't seen enough of it yet. I, think, I don't think the plan is for, enough for us to have seen enough of it yet. I think they might do a good job on that stuff, mm. but then again, they might not.
1: So... Throughout the big lead weeks last year, Starmer was actually preaching caution, saying that Labour should treat the gap as if it's just two points. But do you think he could have done more to keep that distance bigger? You, you hinted that the, the sort of the five plans could have been maybe fleshed out a little bit better.
2: Well, maybe, but that's only if, you, if his goal is to try and keep the gap down at this point in the electoral cycle. And it may be that he's not really thinking very hard about that. I mean, Labour's big poll lead, as we've kind of already discussed, was caused by an incredibly incompetent prime minister like detonating the economy, jacking up everyone's mortgages and being chucked out after six weeks. And that sort of gift doesn't really come around very often. i. I mean, it's never come around before anything on that scale. And now there's a more sensible prime minister and people are a bit more forgiving of him. I mean, what more should Keir have done? What more could he have done? I mean, he's been an effective prosecutor of government failure for the last three years, and there's been a hell of a lot of failure to prosecute. Um, But we we have seen at the start of this year that there is clearly a plan for phase two, and it was always the plan, i.e. from this point on, making Labour look like a party that's ready to govern, Mm. ready to go, ready with a new big idea. I mean, the only proactive thing he can do is to make that case more forcefully, but I don't think he should necessarily be tempted into doing it. I think he has a clear timetable to lay that stuff out and should possibly not be worrying too much about the polls being a bit narrower than they were three months ago when they're already pretty favourable. Yeah,
1: I think I agree because there is a danger in peaking too soon. Um, Rachel, Starmer railed against the opposition for opposition's sake, as he called it, of the Corbyn years. Um, But these attack ads, they're, they're causing a lot of complaints internally within the party, what are they if not just opposition for opposition's sake?
3: So the attack ad story is really interesting. There was a Times article recently by Patrick Maguire that suggested uh, and I'm going on his reporting entirely that Starmer didn't actually know about them, didn't sign them off. Uh, They weren't his idea and neither did uh, Yvette Cooper, the the Home Secretary. So these are ads that basically show how low convictions are for rape, for child sexual abuse uh, over the last couple of years and are blaming Rishi Sunak personally for those figures. We know that Labour Wants to go very tough on crime in the next election. We've had Steve Reed, who is uh, the, the the shadow policing crime minister, uh, go very very hard about antisocial behaviour and um, a, a lot of a lot of messaging that sounds like it could have been taken from from the Tony Blair era. Uh, but they are really negative ads, and they are. Unfair in the sense that Rishi Sunak is not personally responsible for how many rapists get convicted. Um, I found the disgust, the backlash at them, quite strange though, because Politics is dirty and election campaigns are mm. dirty. And given the amount of shit that the Conservatives have thrown at Keir Starmer for all kinds of things, Boris Johnson associating him with Jimmy Savile and refusing oh, yes. to, to take the. This comments back. Rishi Sunak, though, were more recently accusing Starmer of being on the side of the people trafficking gangs, like it was gonna get negative at some point, and Labour made it negative a little bit earlier than people were expecting. I'm not sure that's as much of a big deal mm. as some people are suggesting.
1: And and the only addendum I would have to that is that maybe they have a clearer idea of what the conservative attack lines will be. Um, during the general election, and they're trying to kind of pull the rug from under those before they even Mm. um, begin. So maybe there's something going on there. Um, I wanted to ask you, the Conservatives can rely on a sort of big rump of right-wing press to label Corbyn a terrorist or splash a photo of Ed Miliband eating a sandwich for weeks, while Labour have to basically generate their own negative campaigning. Does this reveal a structural disadvantage for Labour?
3: Well, if you had... uh Someone from the right on this podcast, if you had Matt Goodwin, for example, he would say that we are all the new elite and everyone working in media is, is, uh. <laughs> Seth is nodding at me. Yes, we're the new elite together. But everyone working in media is put down woke, that caveat. <laughs> Sat
0: in our <laughs> North London suburb
3: uh, and in our in our, in our bunker uh, that we are woke and left wing, and that therefore there is such a cultural bias in favour of the left that we really need these right wing papers to go hard on on left wing politicians. Um, uh, so I was Just throwing that in there as a, as an example of balance. Uh, look. The right and the left always have different uh, uh, ammunition when it comes to fighting elections. They have different places the battlefield takes place, Uh, use of social media in, in recent years. The left have been much, much better at that kind of grassroots campaigning about using social media platforms, possibly not now that Elon Musk is in charge, but to sort of galvanize young people and sort of the student base. And yeah, the Right has the telegraph, and you, you you kind of price that in. I kind of think though that the next election in about eighteen months is basically going to be fought on the grounds of does it still feel like the country is falling apart, and which of the two sides do you think will do a better clear up act and that that that's it It's really that basic
1: mm. Seth, with over a year still left until the election, could it be that what we're seeing is a a, a little Low risk test run of attack ads by Labour to see whether actually in an electoral environment they help or hurt them. Yes,
0: but that's normal practice. I mean, you find that by elections, council elections are always used as a test bed for the big themes that Mm. might come along in a later general election. what you find very often is that actually there are very few surprises come the general election. Um, it's one of the reasons why generally there are very few big shifts of opinion in most general elections. I think the obvious exceptions to that rule would be 2017 and before that 1970. But prior to that, other than those extreme cases sort of 10% shifts in opinion, mm. you'll get a shift of maybe 5% here or there. But the the atmosphere of the election is really set 12, 18 months out. So that's what we're doing right now or already in this
1: Long campaign. The Tony Blair demonise poster, uh, I think most people will be familiar with it. It sort of betrayed a, a, a real fear of Blair within the Tory party at that time. It, it felt authentic, right? Um, but ultimately, voters were not afraid. How can CCHQ make voters afraid of Starmer? In the same way, it just it seems like quite a tall order.
0: I think they'll have the work cut out for them, for the same reason that the Demon Eyes poster didn't really work. Um, something that's a really good counter-example is Ed Miliband. Because Ed Miliband crashed and burned in the 2015 general election. But if you look at Conservative internal polling prior to that, they'd picked up that most people thought he was a bit weird. And that was an impression made very, very early on, mm. say two, three months into his leadership. If you remember, for example, the interview where he's asked the same question, or sorry, different questions uh, half a dozen times, and he comes up with exactly the same robotic answer, the strikes are wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And people just cottoned on to the fact that, this was someone a bit geeky, a bit anorakish they couldn't necessarily connect to. Starmer had a very good start. I mean, he's, he's having a b- bit more difficulty now. with People questioning, you know, should we be doing better? All these kinds of questions you usually lob at any leader of the opposition. But um, he's not had a bad impression. I mean, his first, uh, apart from Corbynistas who hate him because he's not Jeremy Corbyn, uh, very few people actually started hating Starmer. It was sort of, oh, OK, he's not that guy.
1: It's it's
3: like hating the colour beige.
1: Yeah.
3: Who hates beige?
1: I hate beige. Um, (laughs) Tom, Starmer painted himself as Mr. Rules, expecting, I think, an electoral battle with Johnson. In retrospect, has he been caught out by the change of prime minister, the double change of prime minister, and actually limited his options because he's now pitching off against someone else who appears quite conventional and quite technocratic. And so that positioning no longer has the same appeal.
2: Well, I mean, I think, I mean, there's two parts of that, two-part answer, really. I mean, I think Sunak v. Starmer is a return to normal politics, right? You know, essentially the tug of war for the medium voter or whatever you want to call it, who's got people's best interests at heart. And Sunak hopes that he will have turned things around sufficiently in 18 months' time to make people vote for him. Where Starmer hopes that people will still have had enough of the Tories, that the country will still be a mess and therefore want to change. Mm. I mean, he has obviously lost what perhaps he might have imagined would have been the electoral battleground, which is this man is a complete arsehole and I am not. <laughs> but I think potentially the strength of Starmer's suit there is overplayed by people like us. But there are still a lot of people who quite like Boris Johnson, and I can't sit here and say with 100% certainty that but for Partygate, um, or even include it with Partygate, Johnson in two years might end up turning things around and giving people reason to vote for him. So it might seem obvious to say, well, it's disappointing for Starmer that he now has an opponent who looks much more like him and he's not fighting Johnson, who everybody hates. But it, the opposite of that could be true. I, th- I think I think Starmer versus Sunak is standard political territory and Starmer is a better politician than people give him credit for. And they might well have worked
1: in his favour. Rachel, even if the polls are simply a rebalancing after the trust blip, it is the direction of travel, I think, that worries Labour supporters and their suspicion that the data is soft. Will the local elections provide a helpful answer, actually one way or, or, or another, that can guide Starmer, that can show him the true popularity and strength of feeling.
3: So the local elections are useful uh, as a barometer. This is all according to my colleague, Ben Walker, who is polls, not lulls, although he is lulls as well. (laughs) His his sort of way of looking at it is you look at the swing uh, and you look if the swing in various seats matches up to what the polls, obviously they're they're council seats, they're not sort of constituencies, it's a bit different. But you look at those areas and you look, does the swing... Mirror what you're seeing in the mm. polls, and if it does, then the polls are broadly accurate, uh, which they they have been for various by elections that we've seen recently. And if they're not, if Labour win the seats but they don't win them by the margins that the polls would suggest they would, then you've got reason to worry. And the Conservatives will be looking at them in the same way as well. The Conservatives will also be looking at them in terms of are we having our vote kind of squeezed in the north red wall kind of areas by Labour and in the southern true blue Tory seats by by the Liberal Democrats. Um, so all the parties are kind of going to be using those as, as an assessment. But to go back with what we were talking about at the start of this topic, it's not really about people switching from the Conservatives to Labour. It's about how many of those who voted Conservative in 2019 are just fed up with the party, fed up with the chaos, fed up with politics in general, and are going, I can't be doing with this, I'm not going to vote, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And how many of them will come back into the fold as election campaigning really ramps up. And that's not something local election results can tell you. It's mm. too far away, too much can change. And again, it's, it's really going to come down to do people feel richer or poorer and are they motivated enough to put all the chaos of the last couple of years behind them and get out and vote Conservative again? And we're just not going to know that. And there's not really a lot that Labour can do about that.
1: Joe Biden ended his tour of the island of Ireland in County Mayor. As reporters said, the world's our producer, Jade, never thought she'd hear. The world's eyes will be on Ballina. As Biden charmed lowercase Irish Republicans, Liz Truss was failing to charm their uppercase counterparts in Washington, blaming the woke markets for her kamikaze mini-budget and warning, our nations are becoming social democracies by the back door. Oh God, no, no, not social democracy, why? The toxic legacy of Donald Trump's time in office has left all manner of radioactive waste in Washington rather than draining the swamp Trump toxified it. And people like George Santos and Marjorie Taylor Greene are what is now crawling out of it. But as social media is consumed with whether or not gollywogs are racist, spoilers, they fucking are, GB News looks more and more like an Alex Jones tribute act and Suella Braverman ramps up her rhetoric against migrants. Has everything gone a bit Fox News in Blighty? Seth... What on earth is Trust doing in D.C. mixing with the likes of the Heritage Foundation? Who are these people? Why is she speaking to them? And why are they paying her to speak to them? I mean, the Heritage
0: Foundation is a very long established and one of the very best funded uh, right-wing think tanks on the sort of libertarian side of politics. Very much the people that Trust has been increasingly aligning herself with over the five or six years leading up to her run for prime minister. And... Typically, an ex-prime minister will go on a lucrative speaking tour to make some money in the States. This is exactly the kind of audience you would expect her to speak to, but um, she doesn't seem to be adding much luster to, to her prime minister. I mean, to give you some idea of the sort of positive shit spin she's been putting on it, I was looking at the Speaker Bureau where she uh, advertises her skills, and she names her greatest achievement as prime minister as um, leading the nation in mourning her late majesty and says that uh, she faced huge resistance from those who wanted to maintain the status quo and reached a conclusion that she could not deliver the mandate on which she had been elected.
3: Oh, oh, that is that is one for the euphemism record book, isn't is it? That is just
1: extraordinary. <laughs> I am just <laughs> floored by that. So basically, her biggest achievement is wearing black and yep. Failing trying, to trying not to fall over while curting. I mean, bloody hell. It was a short spell in office. There wasn't much else to choose um, <laughs> Let's talk about this speech. She blamed higher taxes on woke culture. I mean, what does it even mean? (laughs) Echo question. Uh, This is exactly what her audience
0: would want to hear. Um, Remember, this is the ultra right of US Republican politics. But this is something that's... Yeah, but it's not the idiot right. No, but it's the opinion former.
3: They really believe this stuff. Ah, I should say that I... On another podcast at another time, I will tell you about the the Time that I accidentally went to a conference of libertarian right wing think tanks (laughs) in New York, the heritage were you were were young, needed the money, etc. I didn't know what it was, (laughs) and neither did the organization who sent me. But that's another story, they genuinely Mm -hmm. believe this stuff. I sat next to two people, one of whom ran a think tank in the Philippines uh, that helped uh, target. Police corruption uh, that was uh, really sort of holding the the the, the small local economies back, and the person next to me was like, "I made sure that Florida didn't have to follow the rules of the Affordable Care Act." I was just Mm. like, "These two things are not the same." (laughs) Mm. Sorry, digression over. No, 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 (laughs) totally.
0: I mean, bear in mind that we talk a lot about dark money in British politics, but the amount of money in British politics is tiny compared to in U.S. politics. Uh, The amount of money that would make you consider to be a big donor to the Conservative Party, wouldn't buy you half an hour with a congressman in the US. So this is the
1: big time for Liz Truss. This is her cash-in. Wow. Um, Tom, uh, in the Indy last week, you proposed that Liz Truss makes Donald Trump look normal, seeing as it's (laughs) maths day on the podcast. Could you show your workings?
2: Uh, By all means. I mean, it was a bit of a flippant comment. But what I argued is that the worst thing, the single worst thing Donald Trump ever said stood out on its own. And that was that you could cure COVID by injecting someone with bleach, right? Yes. <laughs> Although he, he never actually did that. He just said it. And if he had done it, as soon as the patient died, I suspect he would have stopped doing it, right? Trust, meanwhile, injected the economy with bleach. It did die. <laughs> she was struck <laughs> off. But she is now going around the world saying it wasn't her fault. The problem was that she wasn't allowed to inject enough and also that she was forced out by an anti-bleach injection lobby known as the Establishment. And that's why everything's screwed. And it's definitely not her fault. I mean, it was only really a joke, although now I go through the argument again, I essentially do mean it.
1: Do you think things are worse, actually, in our politics, that they have become more right wing and more? polarised or are we doing the thing people always do of romanticising what politics was like in the past? I mean, definitely.
2: I mean, politics um, in this country and in the US has not recovered from 2016. We have not recovered from Brexit. And I don't really see how we do apart from just hoping to basically ignore it because there's not really much of a a way the political culture can recover from it. Um, And social media has obviously made things worse. And I think if I can, let me answer this by trying to go back to Labour's attack ads, which I know we've already talked about. But the the, the reason people like us were horrified by it is because we want, we believe in a sort of when they go low, we go high type thing. And because in this country, there's only been one party of government for 13 years, the general deterioration in, in political culture and in, which is fueled by a massive, complete change in like information architecture, if you know what I mean, has happened on the watch of one party. So people like us blame it all on that one party. And actually, when you see Labour's attack ads, you think, oh God, maybe maybe this is how things have to be from now on. I, You say the wrong thing to get it talked about. And maybe that's just, maybe we haven't really come up with a way of challenging that. I mean, I remember David Cameron said after the 2016 referendum that, Someone tells a lie and then the person telling the truth has to go over there and talk about the lie. And so the lie wins. And we haven't really come up with a way out of that. And I think he was absolutely correct to say that. And he said that seven years ago. And we're no closer to an answer. So, of course, things are worse. And I don't actually know how you fix them.
1: Rachel, um, nobody embodies that Trumpy intoxication of the Tory party more than Home Secretary Zoella Braverman, I think. Um, one senior former Tory MP has called her a bigot. Um, last weekend. Former Tory party chair Saida Awasi toured studios um, calling out what she described as racist rhetoric. Is the rise of someone like Braverman, especially when it comes to immigration, just the inevitable consequence of Donald Trump's success? Has he provided a model, as it were?
3: I think it would be lovely and comforting to blame Stella Bravman on Donald Trump uh, and to say that the anti-immigration and racist s- strands of uh, that you get within the Conservative Party and on the, on the British right are a symptom of what, what Donald Trump did to American politics and, and then to global politics more generally. I think that's very comforting. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's true. I think it's always been there. Uh, and actually, it's not really just about Trump. You've seen after the uh, 2008 financial crisis, you saw populist movements in countries across the West and across Europe. And what was interesting, I think, about the UK is that rather than have a right wing party suddenly do very well, as you saw with we, we the National Front in France, uh, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany mm. did better. They had You had populist right wing movements in Italy in, uh, d- doing quite well across um Eastern Europe. We didn't have that. We had an issue, which was Brexit and Mm -hmm. and immigration and kind of a lot of that right wing populist angst seemed to come out through that referendum. And we're still, as Tom said, dealing with the consequences of it now, which is a very long way of saying that I think Sola really believes this stuff and isn't doing it because... Donald Trump has emboldened her in any way. What I think is interesting more recently is that she has worked out that she is sort of a lightning rod for this one faction within the Conservative Party, which, by the way, absolutely horrifies other Conservative yeah. MPs. That's That source about her being a real bigot came from uh, somebody who, an anonymous source, but a, a former member of Boris Johnson's. Cabinet, and they really worry that she is becoming a liability and that the toxicity of of, of her comments will hurt other Tory MPs Mm. in in the next election when people sort of turn away from, from this. But there's nothing that they can do because Rishi Sunak appointed her into his cabinet to solve a problem, the problem being that he didn't want another leadership contest after Liz Truss imploded. And now he's he's sort of stuck with her, even if she's more interested in protecting landlords from... Uh, having to get rid of their racist gollywog dolls than she is about you know increasing rape conviction rates or sorting out the problems in the police
1: and and, and talking about that ramification I think it, it's not just cultural sometimes it's direct right so we have uh, this organisation called Turning Point UK which is a direct spin-off of a far-right Trump youth support group in the States. It has described drag artists as groomers, called UK schools Maoist indoctrination camps. It It's held protests alongside anti-Islam pastors. Um, opposition parties have called on the Conservatives to cut ties with the group. Turning Point says it has no formal links to the party. What What's going on here?
3: So it doesn't have formal links to the party, but it does have links to individual conservatives. The uh, Conservative MP Marco Longhi is the group's honorary president, and he's been facing calls to step down from that role. And, you know, the usual suspects... It seems like
1: quite a formal link, I'd say.
3: Yeah, but he, <laughs> like, but someone
1: in your party is the president of this bloody thing.
3: But not, I guess, with the blessing of the party. It's not an official Conservative link. It's the link uh-huh. of a Conservative MP, is mm. is kind of the argument. Um, And then the usual suspects, Preeti Patel, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Lee Anderson, who we always seem to talk about on this podcast, (laughs) have all all kind of praised it. Um, I think what's interesting is that we need to get better at understanding in this country that a lot of our culture war flashpoints are directly imported from the US. And they are not necessarily relevant to uh, British culture and, and, and British society. But the kind of the whole row over drag queen story hour, which was totally manufactured by a, a US group that then sort of exported it over here and now we're talking about it like it's a headline political issue. Oh no some local libraries might have performances for children that have performers in drag that parents are not forced to take their children mm. to. Let's have protests, let's make it an issue that we raise at Prime Minister's questions. It's entirely fabricated and, and manufactured and it is a kind of direct result of while, importing their culture wars I- into our political spaces. While
1: simultaneously I should point out, four about how they grew up with Lily Savage.
3: Oh, the yeah, table. but the, what, was, what was that argument? Um, she, she, she wasn't woke. There wasn't a woke bone in her body, apparently. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> Seth, I listened to the Speaker of the Irish Parliament addressing both houses for the Biden visit, celebrating the contribution of immigrants, praising Ireland's progressive values, in parallel watching our Home Secretary defend racist dolls, and I felt a real pang of anger... Um, Both Tom and Rachel have identified Brexit as a sort of turning point in this, but was Brexit the start of Britain's reversal of progress or the consequence of it? Because that's not clear in my head. I think it certainly
0: accelerated it. The context to bear in mind is the background of America's relationship with Ireland. Um, For example, you see this reflected in American politics in the way that being Irish American is a respectable, virtuous way of saying, I'm working class. And you can say that, for example, if you're John F. Kennedy, who, accounting for inflation, is the still the richest president in history because Trump isn't that rich. And <laughs> Kennedy, from this fabulously wealthy background, was nonetheless able to say, I'm Irish American. Um, that culture is still very, very deep. I mean, I was in Boston a few weeks ago speaking to people who were very open about the culture of fundraising for the IRA being something that was totally normal up until at least the early to mid-90s. Um, but the reason is we have to step outside of ourselves as country and see how the rest of the world sees us. And when America thinks of Ireland and Britain, they see the oppressed and they see the oppressor. Um, You know, this taps into something very, very deep. And so we think of our special relationship, or at least we talk a lot about our special relationship with America. But right now, um, I think that far more heartstrings are being tugged at by the historic American relationship with Ireland. And this is something which has far more emotional buy-in than... Uh, a special relationship which was based in no small part on Britain being a bridging point between the US and Europe. Mm -hmm. And now that that's gone, what's left?
1: Tom, um, GB News is now under investigation by Ofcom for breaking rules regarding active politicians posing as political journalists. But is the the rise of the opinionated news journalist actually more honest than pretending there is balance? You know, with Dan Wooden, you know what you're going to get, right? He doesn't pretend to be neutral. Uh, yeah, I mean, I
2: remember, I think it's on GB News' first day when um, Dan Wooden had to sort of sit there while one of his guests explained to him that, um, I can't remember who it was now, but it was OK because somebody they'd accused of being a paedophile was actually one of the good types of paedophile, <laughs> And he just sort of sat there, t- transformed into the, the, the gnashing teeth emoji with his gnashing teeth clearly blinding all the viewers as well. But, um, I mean, impartiality rules are there to be got round, right? Uh, GB News, what they did, and it was their plan from the start, is just to copy LBC, which gets round them by having balance across the schedule, but not exactly balance within it, i.e. James O'Brien balances out Nigel Farage, for example. I mean, I sort of think that if you can do that, then the impartiality rules are meaningless because the only people who get balance... Are the people who listen to the same station twenty four hours a day, seven right, days a week, right. and all those people are going to be mental?
1: Aren't they? So, who are the progressive um, uh, hosts on GB News? Well, I
2: don't know, but I, it, will, <laughs> it will be done. It will be. It will have been done in a clever way. There will be like, um, uh, there will be segments which are sort of I don't know, straight news or, or sort of chit chat. Like, like I think they have something late morning which is sort of you know, does anyone remember the nineteen eighties? That sort of stuff, and then and then and then that can nominally balance out. Um, right-wing punditry. I mean, if I was running Ofcom, I would be of the view that impartiality means what the BBC thinks it means. I impartiality within, at the moment of broadcast, if you see what I mean. Um, and I would definitely resist the idea that it's fine to, to the that there's more honesty in the rise of the opinionated news journalists. Like, there may be more honesty there, but broadcasting impartiality is the key thing that is stopping us um, from the slide all the way down to the place America is in. America is in the place it's in because Fox News and so on bought into the Trump myth, spread their lies. And now they're literally right now facing a $1.6 billion lawsuit, which could put them out of business and threatens all the rest of the Murdoch empire too. Um, Some of it quite noble. So there may be honesty in, in an opinionated news journalism, but it's not an honesty that we should embrace or welcome. It is
1: extremely bad news. Rachel, the vast majority of journalists want to write balanced and nuanced stuff, I think. And the vast majority of editors want to extract the angle that will get the most traffic. Um, How do you reconcile the two without adding to this shouty, febrile? atmosphere.
3: So this feels like a very personal question. It is a very personal question because
1: you've been at both ends, you still are. I
3: I, I still am. I I write articles and I edit articles and I write the headlines for other people's articles and I have headlines for my articles written by other people and uh, yes, I think the advice that I was given very, very early on, uh, particularly as a, a, a woman, because lots of panels are looking for women and lots of uh, often they want women to, to fill roles and, and like that, was don't let yourself get pushed into positions that you don't believe in. As a as a writer, as a pundit, a, a, an editor may be looking for an angle and maybe they'll give you some ideas that you hadn't thought about before and maybe there's a way of doing it where you can say something interesting that lines up with what they want. But if fundamentally you don't believe what you're writing about or speaking about, it will come back to bite you at some point, possibly in a couple of years or decades. And I try and do that as an editor as well. I try to push people into places that are interesting and different and aren't just a repeat of what everyone else has been saying, but not positions that they don't actually hold. And I think most of the editors I work with, most of the writers I work with, understand that it's a balance and there's no point writing something that no one's going to read because you're just repeating the same thing as everyone else. Um, But you've got to have some sense of integrity. And it is advice that I give to young journalists starting out. Now, again, particularly young women on the right, you will get pushed into positions that will give you all kinds of attention and Twitter followers and you'll get gigs on the various radio stations and tv stations because you're saying something really radical and different and usually it's not young women who say it um and it's not worth it and maybe they'll all be my boss in 10 years time and maybe it is worth it for them but that's (laughs) that's the 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 route that i've taken and generally i don't think i've ever worked with editors who have really tried to push people beyond the, the realms that they're comfortable in
1: Finally, a quick Google of the words councillor and suspended will yield all manner of madness from around the UK's hundreds of local councils. Last month, a Tory councillor was suspended for saying she didn't want pride sex flags on her high street. Another Tory council candidate in Blackpool lost the whip after he described the civil service as lazy, pedo-protection scum. They sound like the kind of people you want organising your bin collections. Then last week, Pembrokeshire councillor Andrew Evans was recorded, apparently, claiming that all white men should have a black person as a slave. At least that's the allegation. I am aware of such serious allegations being made against me, said Evans. This is why I have self-referred to the Public Service's Ombudsman for an independent evaluation. It is now in the hands of legal experts. It would be unfair on the process for me to comment. Rachel, how have we ended up in a place where admitting you said something you were recorded saying and stepping down can be seen as being unfair to the panel deciding whether to do like. I mean, are guilty pleas unfair to the judicial system?
3: Uh, Apparently so. This whole thing is bizarre. Uh, Very few details we have, presumably because it would be unfair to the panel if we had (laughs) any more details. But uh, I haven't been able to find the context for these remarks at all. Certainly, he hasn't denied making them. And I, I Maybe this is extrapolation on my part, but I kind of think that if you didn't make those comments and you knew for certain it wasn't you, you'd say, you'd so. say so, wouldn't yeah, you? You would, you'd say um, so. But I, I, you
1: wouldn't refer yourself.
3: I have to say, I think uh, I, I've self-referred or I've referred myself as a, a euphemism for, for, for something else in, in, in my teenage experience, but there you go. Um it's, it's just deflection, isn't it? It's a way of making the story go away. You shut it down and then you know that you're going to be found guilty because there are recordings. But you hope that by that point, somebody else will have done something more recently that captures yeah. imaginations and captures the news cycle. It's incredibly cynical and it's also quite effective.
1: And it's, this was a defense that Johnson used for everything. Right?
3: We're waiting for Sue Gray. Yeah. We're waiting mm-hmm. for Sue Gray. For, ev- for yeah. everything,
1: there was always some external evaluation going on. By hiding himself behind an internal investigation, you can take the sting out of the, wrong, the wrongdoing in a way. You squash the sombrero, to use the great man's words. <laughs> Are we now seeing the effect of having Johnson in charge percolate to local politics?
3: I mean, I think people have always used that as a defence. I'm pretty sure there's a plot line on the thick of it where something something similar, sort of, it, it, that, that, that suggested, I think it might even be yes, Minister, it's suggested that this is how you make a story go away. What Johnson was able to do was do it on such a flamboyantly brazen scale that it's meant that a lot of people who ordinarily would have had the decency to just resign go, well, oh, hang on, he could make it work, maybe I can too so i don't think it's necessarily a, a johnson phenomenon um but i do think that his example has emboldened shall we say uh, others to to try it but on this particular case i mean we don't maybe maybe he didn't say it maybe the independent panel will will exonerate him um he's not going to be a counselor for long though is he he's just not
1: seth um Just before we recorded, it was announced that Rishi Sunak is under investigation by the Standards Commissioner over declarations of interest. Do we know what this is about? Yes. um, It's specifically
0: around a company called Koru
1: Kids, which
0: as of last month's budget has received payments from the government. They're taking part in a pilot scheme. And Rishi Sunak spoke before the liaison committee a couple of weeks ago of MPs, and he didn't declare that he had any interest when he was specifically asked, uh, how come some of these companies on the private sector do so well out of all of this? Um, It's unusual. uh, It's difficult given the scale of his wife's business interests to actually set them all out. But it is It is unusual when an MP is asked the question to not either immediately say I have an interest or chip in belatedly and say I, I should have mentioned. Just here's a clarification,
1: or maybe I, you know I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll look into it or yep. some yeah. kind of holding um, answer. He
3: has too. That's the problem. They have too much money and too many interests in too many areas, <laughs> and if he was asked, it's too much for one man to keep track of.
1: Tom, in in a week where Premier League teams finally banished gambling sponsors from their shirts. Why did the Scott Benton story disappear so quickly, (laughs) do you think? In the sting footage, he's bragging about how easy it is for the gambling lobby to get access to MPs.
2: I mean, I think it disappeared quite quickly because he's a complete nobody and was absolutely banged to rights and was completely found out. I mean, it's a sting. I mean, it is, as you say, a sting. If you sting someone that well, they are incapacitated. There's no sort of, there's no chat to be Mm -hmm. had around it. Mm -hmm. They're done, And yet I mean, he's, referred,
1: I mean, what, he's referred himself <laughs> to an inquiry.
2: <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what did he actually say? I mean, there are a couple of things, but one of them was that he said to this proposing lobbyist, well, I'm an MP and I can therefore hang around where other MPs, i.e. ministers, hang around and I get a chance to say something to a minister. And if you pay me loads of money, I might do that for you. Now, I am not quite sure what rules you can have to prevent that from happening. Um, other than it very clearly being against the rules, which it is, and if you break them, you're in the shit, and he is in the shit. I mean, I don't know how you can – the fact that he was suggesting they pay him loads of money because for this unique opportunity he has of just basically hanging around in the staff room and getting hold of people, well, what are you meant
1: to do about that? Not very much. Is the the network of local councils just too big for the parties to properly manage? Uh, We have 318 councils just in England. How do you prevent just nutters from having a a say in which pothole gets filled in? Well, I mean, that is a tricky question.
2: I like what's what's interesting about politics at the moment. I mean, we're we're talking about Scott Benton is in the, for example, in the 2019 election, uh, the Conservatives won a load of seats that they hadn't won for 50 years or 100 years or more. And they suddenly in Parliament are the sort of people that they put in those seats as candidates, are the sort of people that they almost hope are never going to win. And then they did. Mm. And now they and now you have like this cast of really, really, really poor quality MPs. And of course, I mean, I, I've, I, one of the strangest thing about politics, I, I, I like all of us, I've been interested in politics all my life. And I have never really understood why it is a magnet for nutters. I don't mm. know why there are not more what I would call normal people willing to get involved in politics. But frankly, there aren't.
1: OK, so. Oh, all right, so let me let me flip that then. Are local councils quite good as a sort of petri dish for the electoral, you know, worst impulses, allowing parties to deal with people who are unsuitable for promotion at a lower level, as it were? Um, so if a, if a party looks to people with some record and some experience, does it make it easier to weed out the people who, ha- who are sketchy?
2: well there, there, are, there is a lot of people that you need i mean to, to, have a, to, to st- just to have a general election in this country, you need to find six hundred and fifty people who want to stand as an m p and quite often i mean I know this happened I mean, there, are, there are people working in ten Downing Street now as like special advisors who in two thousand and nineteen were just like made to um stand in a completely unwinnable seat just to just to just to put the name on the ballot paper just to just to fill the space so it 's actually quite hard just to get. All of the names necessary to to contest these things. I mean, and so, of course, the local councils, if you are really ambitious and determined to be a politician, um, unless you are really, really, really dysfunctional person, you are going to find it not very difficult, in my view, to become a local councillor.
1: Rachel, the Global Warming Policy Foundation referred itself to the Charity Commission after reports of its efforts to lobby MPs. Does this new wave of there's an investigation going on excuses expose that a system put in place to eradicate bad behaviour has actually become the instrument of hiding it?
3: I I was going to say that I don't think these systems have been set up in order to obscure what's going on or in order to provide cover or an excuse. So when individuals or organisations are asked about these topics, they can use the investigation itself as a shield. And I I think that that's probably true of of other commissions as as well in other areas, like the Charity Commission, uh, like the regulators, that while we have this idea that while an investigation is ongoing, we shouldn't touch it almost in a way that we do with sort of criminal trials. You can't comment on a trial that's ongoing. I and mean, we all, anyone who's done a basic media law course knows that. And that has kind of extended into investigations in all kinds of other areas of, of life that are not in the courts. And actually, we could talk about them, but we just feel this deferential attitude of let's wait for the whole. The whole thing to be wrapped up, by which point the individual the organisation in question is hoping that everything will have blown over. Um, uh, I think on the topic in general of what we do to combat this. Uh, so I'm just trying to work out if Tom's bit has come in or not. It has. It has. It has right. Yeah. Okay, because he talked about people in public life. Um So more more broadly on what we do to combat this, and this kind of comes back to are we getting the right people in politics at all Uh, and and how can we make sure that we don't get uh, absolute nonsense organising our bin collections. Everything about our political systems is kind of geared towards the idea that the people who are in charge probably there because they're the right people and therefore we don't really Mm. need structures in place to hold them to account because if they weren't the right people, we wouldn't have put them in those positions in the first place. And actually, if you think about it differently, if you think about it as, hang on, all of these roles are ones where you're handing people quite a lot of power, you might get a couple of nutters, you might get a couple of psychopaths. Maybe we should build the mechanisms into the system from the very beginning, build in the transparency, build in the accountability, and assume that some of them are going to be wrong and we ought to have a system to deal with that. We'd have a much better system. What we do at the moment is assume they're all thoroughly decent chaps. Uh, and if they're not, I'm sure it will all get sorted out in the end. And actually, that's not really fit for purpose.
1: It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What are the things that have been distracting our panel this week? Tom, let's start with you. (laughs) Um, I watched the. It's quite old, but I watched The Gentleman on Friday,
2: which is a 2019 Hugh Grant uh, Guy Ritchie movie with Hugh Grant and Matthew McConaughey and Colin Farrell and Jeremy Strong and loads of others. Like, have any of you guys seen The Gentleman? I haven't. No, because I was quite. I I I hadn't even heard of it. I saw the trailer. That's all. Like, That's it the in 2019. But like, it's quite good, but um, there were two bits of it that I couldn't believe. Now, I, I don't know if anybody knows this or whether any of you guys do, but I happen to know this. Guy Ritchie, a while ago, branched out into designing and, and selling extremely high end outdoor kitchens. Like he designed them all himself. And mm-hmm. they cost like tens of thousands of pounds. And I just happen to know that because they they're stunning and I sometimes look at them for my own entertainment. And uh, there are whole scenes in this film which are adverts for his outdoor kitchens. Like, I couldn't (laughs) believe it. Like, Hugh Grant actually cooks a Wagyu steak on one of them and talks you through the design features of Guy Ritchie's outdoor kitchens in the middle of a legit, like, you know, Hollywood film. Like, it was so far beyond any definition of shamelessness that I actually just completely loved it. Like, it was so gratuitous that it was, I mean, I I, I sort of, when I got to the end of the film, I rewound it and just watched the the Guy Ritchie outdoor kitchen porn again because it was just so brilliant. It was like Hugh Grant being on QVC. Like, absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm speechless.
1: Um, <laughs> follow that, Rachel.
3: Mine is not as exciting as uh, outdoor kitchen product placement. Um, <laughs> that I, was pretty God's I know. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, no, I've really been enjoying Magpie Murders, which is on uh, BBC iPlayer. It's the adaptation of Anthony Horowitz's uh, thrilling murder mystery um, and I interviewed him about it a couple of years ago That the book that is and it is wonderful because the protagonist is a literary agent and editor who has to solve the crime of the book that she is editing but also a real life murder of the author or is it a murder we're not sure um, and it is a huge amount of fun uh, and thoroughly absorbing and not in any way anxiety-inducing. And when it comes to escape routes from politics, that's what I look for. Oh, that sounds terrific. How about you, Seth?
1: Um, well, as
0: uh, our resident geek, of course, I've been watching Picard and the season finale.
1: No, don't do uh, <laughs> No, no spoilers!
0: No, well, I, I won't say anything spoiler-specific, but... Um, up until now, lots of traditional Star Trek fans have been saying, Oh, we don't like this. It's too dark, it's too individual, it's all I've about Piards. I've loved it for precisely that reason. And now it's been every fanboy's dream, basically. And it's fine, but it's less interesting, actually. It doesn't do it, it gives you, you know, lots of um uh long, loving shots of starship interiors and things like that, which are of great interest to the 1% of hardcore Trekkies, but actually to the casual viewer, it's not as dramatically
1: thrilling. I, I mean, I am a fanboy, and I, I'm about halfway through the series, and and I would say that that team and that ship deserve the chance to say their goodbyes, I mm. guess. So I, I'm enjoying it. Um, so I've been rewatching the X-Files oh, yes. from the start all the way through. Um, some episodes hold up incredibly well. Some episodes have aged particularly badly Um The thing that really jumps out at me is just how awful the incidental music is throughout (laughs) the thing. It's like random synth chords Mm. for Mm -hmm. anything suspenseful. Mm -hmm. And the ubiquitous pan flute for any ethnic episode from Bolivia to China via Nigeria. Like the very first thing you hear in that episode Mm. is the pan flute going... And it's like, what are you doing? About? And an eagle screech. If if it's a if it's a story involving sort of Native Americans, a really really terrible music. I would like it.
0: Um, I would like it released as an album. What about the lighting? I remember none of the warehouses had working lighting.
1: None, none. <laughs> and and also, um, uh, I can confirm that uh, uh, Scully never wears. If you see her in a, at the beginning of a scene wearing trousers, it means it's going to be an action scene she's going to have running to do. If she's wearing a skirt, it's going to be a quiet office based scene. It's fantastic. Thanks for joining me to Seth Tevers. Thank you very much. Rachel Cunliffe. Thank you. And Tom Peck. Thank you very much. We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. And if you're looking for another reason to support us on Patreon, sign up and you will get access to our Podmasters Question Time on Zoom on Thursday, 27th of April, exclusive to Patreon backers. Answering your questions this time, the mysterious Roz Taylor. In the meantime, here's our theme tune Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. See you next time.